1: Welcome to the New York Institute for Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. Ren Weschler is the Director Emeritus of the New York Institute for the Humanities. He's a two-time winner of the George Polk Award and won the 2007 National Book Critics Circle Award for criticism. His book, Mr. Wilson's Cabinet of Wonders, was on the shortlist for both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award. His biographical memoir of his late friend Oliver Sacks is his 18th book. Ren, uh, welcome to the podcast. Hey, okay. great to be with you. You are always a character in your books in some way. Your biography of uh, Oliver Sacks, your book about Oliver Sacks, is like your other writing, um, not conventional in that sense.
0: You call it a biographical memoir. Oh, well, what is that? Well, it has to do with the, in this particular case, with the strange uh, origins of the book. Back in the early 80s, I had just sold my first book, which was a, a book about Robert Irwin, the light and space artist of, from California. I had basically hung out with him for three or four years in Los Angeles, where I was living at the time, and had, you know, basically had lunch with him one, two, three times a week, and he, we always went around, hung around, did things, and I was, would go home and take notes, and then eventually I turned that into a narrative, which was called "Seeing is Forgetting the Name of the Thing One Sees. I had a whole series of rave rejections from New York publishers. This is fascinating, by the way. 1980. They all said the same thing. We love this book, but how could we possibly publish a book about a California artist? What is that? But I got very lucky and I sold it over the transom to The New Yorker, then moved to New York. And when I arrived in New York, I was looking I was doing various other things for The New Yorker. I was their correspondent in Poland. I was doing other sorts of writing along the way. But I was looking for another person to really get into and have that kind of relationship. And I had already been corresponding with Oliver Sacks. Now, it's important to realize that in 1980, Oliver Sacks was virtually completely unknown. He was, to the extent that medical professionals knew about him, doctors and so forth, they either ignored him or they dismissed him. He had already published arguably his greatest masterpiece, Awakenings, that had been published in 1973, and virtually nobody had read it. It had gotten great reviews from Auden and Kermode and people like that, but doctors just basically didn't believe it. It hadn't gone through the normal peer-reviewed processes. It wasn't double-blind. It wasn't, you know, math charts and all that so forth. It was, it was a very compelling, existentially compelling, Melvillian I mean, it is one of the masterpieces of 20th century literature. It parenthetically won an award, the Hawthornden Prize, which was the prize that year for imaginative literature, which is a very interesting thing because he had somehow managed to imagine his way into this plight of people at extreme neurological distress and so forth. So anyway, the point is that book had come out, nobody had read it. I happened to have read it for various reasons and been blown away by it and began corresponding with him. And then arrived in New York, and I went out to see him. And he was a recluse. He lived on a little in a little house on City Island, and he worked mainly in state institutions and in Little Sisters of the Poor. He, he was a a very un, unusual thing. He was a, a clinical neurologist who just basically went from place to place, and in his case, spent a whole lot of time with his patients, much much more than other people would. He used to talk about the way that poor houses and institutions were where all the jewels were. He was extravagantly neurotic. He was in the middle of what would be a 10-year writer's block on his next book. Everything else was piling up behind him. The problem with his book, by the way, was his writer's block took the form of graphomania. So he was writing millions of words, just not the right word. And because he was in that way in some way, I could hang out with him. On any given day, the chances are I could go with him on rounds or I could visit him at home. So we saw each other at least once or twice a week. I, I would start interviewing all his friends, Jonathan Miller and Tom Gunn and people like that. I would go home and just like with Robert Irwin, I would take notes. And then at a certain point, about four years in, we were finally getting to the point where we we had helped him to get his book finished. And so I was getting ready at that time to write a standard New Yorker profile. It was going to be one of those three-part New Yorker profiles. Probably would have been about 100,000 words about this extraordinary character. I went off to index my notes, and the index alone was 250 pages long. I started writing. I was well into the writing. And at a certain point, he just asked me not to do it. Why? Thereby hangs the tale. He was gay, although he was terribly, terribly, terribly conflicted about it. And he was at Oxford. His father had said, Oliver, you never bring home any girlfriends. And both his mother and father were doctors. His mother, parenthetically, was one of the earliest female surgeons in England. He had been extremely close to his mother. They were Orthodox Jewish. They knew they had some kind of prodigy on their hands, but they didn't had no idea what to do with this. So she would, for example, bring home. She was a OBGYN surgeon, and she, she would bring home stillborn, you know, fetuses in jars that he could dissect because you know he's a prodigy; should be able to do something. When he was 12 years old, she took him along to the autopsy of a 12-year-old boy who had committed suicide. She would read him stories, you know, her which were typically her favorite stories, D.H. Lawrence stories of all <laughs> all sorts. I mean, it was a weird, crazy, intense relationship. So his father says, you know. Uh, why did you bring home girls? And he says, I don't know. He says, well, do you not like girls? And then he says, Do you like boys? And he said, Father, I'm a homosexual. Please don't tell mother it would destroy her. Now he had never acted on his impulses, but he was gay. The next morning she came tearing down the stairs and she tore into him. She just eviscerated him in in like a three-hour as he called it, deuteronomical cursing, filth of the bow, abomination, I wish you had never been born, you know, just scalded him, and then fell silent for three or four weeks. When they resumed talking, it was never mentioned again, but that was the voice in his head. And as soon as he could, several years later, having gotten his medical degree from Oxford, like a bat out of hell, he fled to America, presently to San Francisco and to Los Angeles. Where for a brief period, he acted out extravagantly. He was in a leather scene. He was on the fringes of Hell's Angels. He was a motorcyclist. He took phenomenal, phenomenal amounts of drugs. Every dose and overdose was insulin. He was a bodybuilder. He was the California state heavyweight lifting champion. He lifted 600 pounds from a squat position, hence Hell's Angels name for him was Dr. Squat. At a certain point, he just looked at himself in the mirror and he said, if I continue this, I'm going to be dead in six months. And he basically quit everything called turkey pretty much over a period of about a year and eventually moved to New York. By the time I met him, he was, had been celibate for 15 years. At the point when, when he freaked out about the book, he just said, is there any way you can tell this story without talking about the gay stuff? He had been living a few blocks, his apartment was a few blocks from Stonewall in 1969. He was there at the epicenter except that he wasn't there. That was the very summer when all the drama of awakenings was taking place. So he was at the Beth Abraham Institution for 22 hours a day and he was even eventually just sleeping there, you know. So he missed it. He was in psychoanalysis, his shrink used to tell him that you are the least affected by gay liberation of anybody I know. A huge long part of our relationship over those first four years was him slowly revealing to me the, the blight, the scandal, the horror, of the fact that he was gay. He very much insisted it had no bearing on his science and that it didn't need to be talked about and wasn't there any way I could talk about his life without mentioning it. And it turned out I just didn't think I could. It was too central to, to who he was even though he didn't see it that way. He insisted it had no bearing on his life He had an uncanny capacity to empathize with people in conditions of extreme neurological existential distress. And he called himself a clinical ontologist. Ontology is the philosophy of being, being itself. And he was a clinical ontologist, by which he meant that the diagnostic questions and the sort of people he would Come upon or would focus on was how are you? How do you be i mean that 's the title of the book dr Sas, how are you and that you know it kind of turns it on him. I would say two things about the place of not his gayness but his own attitude towards his gayness. He sympathized he empathized with as what one of his friends called the community of the refused hmm. people who were in back wards, people who were thought of as just vegetables, people who thought of you know weren 't worth looking at. And other neurologists would just pass them by. But he he had an uncanny way of being with them. And that was obviously partly because of his drug experience. He'd been there, you know. For example, the amazing thing that happens in awakenings isn't so much that he gives them the drug that that takes these people who've been like in a statue-like trance for 40 years... And he arrived at this place that had, at this point, Beth Abraham, which was called at that point, a home for the incurable. And he became convinced that a group of them were different from the others. And he began to bring them together in a single ward. There were about 80 of them. He began to spend long times just sitting with them. He had the incredibly audacious and, in many ways, horrifying thought that they weren't to us at all, that they were completely alive inside. But the reason he was able to have that because he'd been there, too. There had been days where he'd spent entire weekends in a corner, not moving and so forth, but was very alive in his mind and so forth. And to be able to tell how he was able to do this amazing thing, which was, was seminal in his whole career, you had to be able to talk about the drug stuff. But if you just talk the drug stuff without what it was part of, it just sounded like he was a complete maniac. He ended up being in psychoanalysis for 50 years. Do you think he thought of his psychoanalysis as a success or as a failure? I mean, not a success. It kept him alive. And he had an amazing analyst. Think about that. Can you imagine being Oliver Sacks' analyst? Well, I think you probably could imagine yeah. being Oliver Sacks' <laughs> analyst. <laughs> well, anyway. But we were dear friends for the next 35 years. He was the godfather of my daughter. And as he was dying, he said to me, now do the book. If I had written the book back in 1984, or the, the profile, it would have been a, a midlife biography of him. When he finally did publish that crazy book that had taken him 10 years, everything else was backed up behind it. And suddenly, within a year, the man who mistook his wife for a hat comes out, and that is a huge bestseller. Uh, and from there on, he's, he's, he becomes very quickly the public figure. And I wasn't around taking notes for all that. And you know, I, I was just his friend, but I wasn't going to attempt to do a, a biography of him at this point. But what I thought I could do was a long introduction, and then the meat of the book is a sketch of him during the day that I was, as I say, a a beanpole Sancho to his capacious Quixote, you know. And then there's a long afterwards about what happened after that, up till his death. One person described it as a portrait of Oliver happening. Hmm, you mean in process. It was very strange if you think back on those four years, because that was just the time I'd arrived from the New Yorker. I was unknown when I started, you know, and, and by the end of those 45 years, I was a New Yorker writer. I was the pollen correspondent. I was all, you know, I'd become a known quantity. He, very much the same thing was going on with him, as though he was much older. So it's him going from the Oliver, who was this recluse, by the end, he is becoming the Oliver who is having talks at the New York Public Library that are being introduced by Susan Sontag and, you know, Jasper Johns is in the audience. And, you know, he's become that person by the end of that during those five years. So it's a kind of hinge five years for him and for me. It's a very poignant at times, heartrending story, but at the, most of the time, much of the time, it's completely hilarious. I mean, he he is... One of the funniest people, and the stories that people tell about him he I mean he is, and it's the thing that you would you you know you would
1: never know that all this was sort of bubbling up underneath to meet him. I remember the first time I met him at a party, and i hadn't actually ever seen him before, mm-hmm. and there was this uh, sort of older but very well uh, preserved man in the corner, and I introduced myself. And he shook my hand, and his handshake was like a vice grip. And I sort of saw the muscles, and I thought, aha, this is Oliver Sacks. And I realized him, (laughs) but he was so shy.
0: Or not. I mean, you never knew who was going to show up. He could be beyond shy. He could be, you know, just rude and obnoxious and exasperating, or he could be the most expansive, lovely person. And you were, I'm sure, at other events at the Institute where he was that other person.
1: He he had an extraordinary capacity for empathy, and you argue, I think, quite convincingly that this was part of the reason that he was able to see beyond the condition, the seemingly incurable condition of some of these patients. And towards the end of his life, he's come to terms with himself and his both his sexuality and other things as well. Uh, Do you think he was ever as insightful about himself as he was about other people?
0: Basically not. I mean, he was that strange sort of person who was at the same time megalomaniac and not very self-aware. Right. Or or, or grandiose. Uh, Grandiose in his shyness and his his self-laceration.
1: there was a line from uh, the uh, July 1982 letter that he wrote to you where he said, I suspect, too, that the darker sides of myself may not be too relevant to what I sometimes am. The idea that you know here is a uh, person who's been trained in medicine and the mind and stuff, and he he's really is arguing in a very honest way. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that there's any connection between yeah. these things. But
0: then in, in other letters, uh, there's one of them in there where he says, it's very strange for me to be the subject of your interest and of your, of your kind interest. And I have a voice that is saying, shut up, not true, none of it is true, die. <laughs> One of the things I've done, by the way, which is maybe fun for you is, is that uh, whenever I quote a letter, I put it on my own website. I have a source book. You can then re- look at the whole letter. These letters are often they're handwritten or they're finger typed. But I mean, they're insanely long often. I mean, they just go on and on and on. He could write you a 10-page single space letter and so forth and and be extravagantly interesting and then just suddenly, you know, so right. I'm not sure I think this I do not think this. I did not write this, I don't exist. <laughs> Everything was like that all the time. And and
1: uh, one point in the book towards the end, you, you bring up the question of his reliability. And and I frankly found that a disturbing section. I mean, I'd often wonder about the ethics of uh, psychiatrists, physicians of one sort or another who write about their patients, mm-hmm. they inevitably give them pseudonyms and right. in many cases will get releases or permission. Not clear that Sachs did that and a lot of his patients who he wrote about had died. Mm-hmm. But then furthermore that he took seemingly liberties with the details of their stories, I, I found actually quite troubling. Well,
0: and I try to talk about that. Uh, and and I And I have... Endless, as I say, you know, there's one of the things I did during those four, four years was going around and talk to everybody. I have interviews with Tom Gunn, and I have interviews with Jonathan Miller, and and they would all talk about how he was a mythomaniac.
1: Uh, he had a very poignant quote. He said, I don't tell lies, though I may invent the truth. Yeah.
0: His dearest friends would say, oh, come on, that's Oliver. Just That is not that is not what happened. You know, it, it, it happened more like this. And, it, uh, and Oliver would be the first to admit that. You know, he says, I think that happened, but I may be fantasticating or something. But... He insisted that when it came to his science, his doctoring, he was always scrupulous. And he was scrupulous. I mean, think about, about what I'm about to say to you. Every single patient he ever saw, that evening he wrote up 500 words on that patient. There are volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes of notes. He was scrupulous. And I have, I have other people, I have his nurses, I have documentary filmmakers and so forth, all saying, yeah, I mean, it was weird. You couldn't believe it, but when you went there, it was there. It, that's what it was. And keep in mind the patients he's dealing with. These are patients who are extremely withdrawn, for example. He would spend hours and hours with them. When Awakenings first came out, one of the reviews by a doctor was, well, sure, if you spend hours and hours with a patient, you're going to get some interesting stuff, but there's no way we can do that. You know? And one of the speech therapists I talked to about him, which, who was vivid and, and emphatic in her say that, no, this is he taught me to observe, and I am a good observer, and he was an amazing observer, and so forth. Now, having said that, he would sometimes talk with, be with a person who wasn't very articulate. These were sometimes working class, whatever else. He would, for starters, at one point he put, invent the truth, another point he, he said, imagine the truth. He would sit there, what's going on in this person? And he would try something out. He would try something else out. Then once something seemed to work, he would go back and look at the early literature, where there did this jibe with other cases, case histories. By the way, case histories were no longer being written. They, they, he, the people, his colleagues, his fellow doctors were 19th century doctors and Leibniz and Descartes and William Harvey and people like that. Those were the people he was consulting with and talking with the whole time in his head. He would check and then he would try it again and so forth. So, on the question of his reliability, I do think that if you take a look at what he gets from a patient and what a standard doctor gets from a patient, and perhaps what I get from an interviewee and what a standard journalist gets from an interviewee, first of all, I think his portrait is much closer to the lived reality. He is trying, he says, to do a neurology of identity. Now, think about that. It's one thing to do population scans of people with this thing and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But that's not what it's like to live. And if you're going to do a neurology of identity in this case, there are no control groups. You know, you're dealing with somebody, nobody else has this condition. He would say, I'm not interested in the disease the patient has. I'm interested in the patient who has the disease. More wonderfully, he said, my subject... And by the way, this is the subject of every journalist worth of salt, is the intersection of fate and freedom, of what horrible deck has been dealt to you, and then what you do with that. The resourcefulness, the resiliency. Sometimes when a patient would ask what, what they should do, he'd say, well, you're the doctor. <laughs> I'm learning from you, you know, and so forth. And the key thing that he was doing, which was the opposite of what the other doctors were doing, was that this whole process was itself part of the therapy. let's put it this way. He was making his patients up. Right. He was helping them to compose. These were people who had been sat in a corner in an institution. Nobody had been talking to them. They were objects. And he was taking them seriously. And through this kind of discussion and so forth and, and this interpersonal thing, in much the way that sometimes a Parkinsonian will freeze up, but if you put your hand on their arm, they can't go into graceful motion again. And then you take your hand off and they, you know, he through this, through A, his attention, and B, his speculation and, and listening and so forth. He would help them become the subjects of their own stories instead of the objects. They would take on agency and they would take on agency because he would say, it's a terrible situation, blah, blah, blah. But having said that, you are a witness of things that none of the of us get to witness. You are the teller of your own tale. You are Sinbad of your own story and so forth. And the whole business of making something up and making a narrative and so forth was of the essence of the therapy. And so to ask whether... He's reliable. Reliable about what? You know, and all that becomes kind of important. By the way, there is now an official biographer, and that person is is, one of the things that person is going to have to do is uh, Laura Snyder, and she is going to have to go back and take a look at the stories he told and then look at the original notes he took at the time. And
1: And, see whether they correlate, yes. And
0: and I, I suspect that they kind of will, although another thing I would say is that the register in which he's writing is different. When he writes those notes, he's doing a certain kind of writing. And then this is clearly all the stories in a, in the man who was wife or the other things there are things this happened many years ago, and it, it, there's almost like the snifter in the hand and uh, you know around the fire uh, fireplace and uh, uh, telling you stories.
1: This reminds me of what we call the Kapitsynsky defense, yeah, yeah, yeah. where Kapitsynsky is on the one hand going out for the Polish press agency and and it's reporting exactly, and exactly then he's the and then he's stepping
0: back and telling stories. Jane Goodall gets into the same trouble, says that the single most important moment in her research on chimpanzees in the wild, it was when she stopped categorizing them by numbers but gave them names, suddenly things became visible. Now you can say, well, that chimpanzee's name is not Jim, <laughs> who are you to impose that name on him, blah, 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 but you suddenly were able to have an i vow kind of interaction and you were able to notice things that when it was just numbers you didn't notice. And in the case of uh who also came in for this kind of criticism, he did two different kinds of registers. The one register he would write in was daily newspaper journalism in some of the scariest places in the world. And then years later, he would write it in a different register. In fact, his greatest book, The Emperor, begins, in the evenings, I would go talk with the such and such. Parentheses. A, in the daytime, I was beat a reporter in the evening I would do the something, and would, meaning it was long ago in a faraway place, and he's telling the story in that register. And I think that in both cases, they didn't get exactly the same things that a, that the New York Times reporter got. but but Michael Kaufman, who was Africa correspondent of The New York Times, held Kapashinsky in awe because he got things that nobody else got, and they were true. You mentioned before that Oliver Sachs was in psychoanalysis for, you said,
1: fifty years. Mm-hmm. And I can't help but compare the attitude that you're ascribing to him in terms of helping the patient's narrative come alive, helping the patient resolve the conflict between volition and fate, and helping the patient tell a story in which he is a character, and a, mm-hmm. a character that one imagines he would admire. Mm-hmm. Did Sachs ever think
0: about becoming an analyst? He would oh, have it's, been a horrible analyst, by the way. Mm. Uh, why, why so? Because he was so full of himself, or right? In some extreme situation, that'd be one thing. But if we were just living your daily life, <laughs> he, he could... I, I remember one person asked somebody, does he ever talk to himself? And, and the answer was, especially when he talks to you. <laughs> you know, I mean, he was, he was so in his own head, except when he went into those places. Or sometimes, you know, he, he would be there with you for five minutes, but then he'd be gone. And, you know, so the kind of negative capability that a... Analyst has I don't think was his forte. Having said that, his great great hero was A. R. Luria, who was a Soviet neuropsychologist. He was somebody who both dealt with brain and, and also was with likewise with individual cases, with great case histories. The mind of the Mnemonist, a man, a story, an amazing case history about a man who couldn't forget anything, hmm. and just how and how he was basically had no room to move because there was no place <laughs> where he'd forgot. And then another one, the, the man with the shattered mind, the brain injury. Soviet neuropsychology was exceptionally high because they had so many brain injuries from the war. And so they had this whole population, and a whole kind of active uh, of active practice came from that. Bolivar had a series of father figures, and at a key moment, it was Luria. He would write, Luria... 40, 80-page letters, you know. And then Laurie would write back with this incredible, gorgeous handwriting, uh, you know, two pages. And then at one point, he spent hundreds of dollars, which he did not have. He was church mouse poor, you know. But he would spend hundreds of dollars uh, when he was working on the leg book, sending a 500-word telegram to Moscow. Should I do it? Da, 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 and came back with a telegram that said, do it. That was, <laughs> that was Laurie's. And by the way, do it what is the point. If your hand is paralyzed, the analysis is not what are the muscle structures of the hand is, you know, reach out to me and hold this class, you know. At one point, uh, you quote him as saying something to the effect
1: of, I am the kind of homosexual who falls in love with a man and then becomes
0: the godfather of his daughter. Was he in love with you? Probably. I mean, that was, the way he put it is, I I regularly fall in love with straight men and become godfather for their daughters. And I, I have a lot of little time bombs in the piece, that things that I say that then, you know, a hundred pages later kind of explode without my saying, remember when I said that? (laughs) They're they're what I consider grace notes, you know, which you never get, by the way, in objective journalism. That's part of the fiction of nonfiction. I mean, you're using all the things that you use in novels, which are parenthetically another way of thinking about a novel is it's the neurology of identity. It's where you normally see fate and freedom interacting, thats you know, so forth and so on. And you use all kinds of, you think use voice, and pacing, and tone, and things like that, very consciously, and among other things, parentheses that blow up to 100 pages later. <laughs> one of the things that we've often talked about this is that if I go to Bosnia to report, and I come back, and I've been there three weeks, you don't want me to open my mouth and do three weeks' worth of every single thing that right. happened. What you actually say, and what everybody says is, what was it like? Not what was it, what was it like? And that means take all the chaos of it and give it form, give it structure, and tell me your version. Mm -hmm. What was it like to be there, you know? Make it so I could imagine what it would be like for me to be there. By the way, the word imagine. Problem, problem, (laughs) alert. Call call the media police. (laughs) On that note, this
1: book is as much about you in some ways as it is about him. Mm -hmm. What did he mean to you?
0: Oh. I mean, when you think about it, when he told me to, to write it again, it's how I dealt with my grieving. He had been one of my dear friends. But unlike all the other hagiographies that have been written so far, he was a monster. He drove me crazy. He was a completely exasperated. He was constantly disappointing. And then suddenly showing up and being more generous and more, you, you know, and I mean, I was learning a lot of the stuff that I would subsequently talk to you about when I would talk about the fiction and nonfiction from, from him. I mean, I've done some of it with Irwin already, but I, I, I was learning to write, reading him, or rather editing him. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you'd have these moments where you'd say, okay, so your editor has taken... 150,000 words and brought it down to 20,000 words. That's great. It's really good. And now there's this little tiny section here that you need to write a bridge. So you need to go home and write a 500-word bridge between these two sections. Don't give me 50,000 words because that won't be worse than useless. And then the next day he'd have 100,000 words. Once uh, we had our daughter, I mean, he was incredibly important to her and wonderful.
1: Exasperating. Exasperating. (laughs) Well, thank you, Ren. This has been terrific. I hope uh, everyone reads the book. (laughs) This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. This episode was produced by Micah Hazel. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.